Hello again from the podcast EMS History, Myth, and Media. One of the most common and enduring images we all associate with ambulances is the vehicles speeding around slower traffic and through intersections with lights flashing and siren blaring. We've all thought this is a vital and life-saving aspect of emergency response. But let's look at this critically. Is it necessary? Does it save lives? And how has it worked historically? Stay tuned to this episode entitled Lights and Siren. If we are to advance the practice of emergency care, it's necessary to critically look at the standard actions we employ. What do we do? What drugs do we administer? what invasive procedures, and even what communications do we use. All of these should be occasionally reassessed in the interest of improving the quality of care we provide and decreasing the risks inherent in the potentially dangerous occupation of EMS. Over the 40-plus years that I've been a doctor, there have been some startling breakthrough changes. Many times, things that we long held as basic truth have been found to be incorrect. Some of these findings were at first discounted and resisted by those who previously accepted what they assumed to be true. One example was the finding that stomach ulcers are not the result of stress and worry, as had always been known to be true, but in fact a bacteria called Helicobacter pylori was the cause of most stomach ulcers. Surgeons had been removing some or all of the stomach to treat ulcers. Gastroenterologists had been using various methods of evaluating and caring for ulcers. And many of these doctors originally claimed that the bacterial cause was wrong. Now we realize that testing for and treating for the bacteria is the correct intervention in the vast majority of stomach ulcers. Likewise, we've changed various aspects of cardiac care. Advanced cardiac life support has significantly advanced. Some drugs have been dropped and others added to the routine over the years. Even the specifics of the manual compressions and the timing or even use of ventilations during the chest compression, those recommendations have all been changed. This has happened because there's been an ongoing scrutiny of each aspect of resuscitation and the changes reflect the best evidence. In this spirit, we should look at some of the long-standing practices in EMS. And one of the most iconic practices is the use of flashing lights and sirens during transport. The questions are first, whether this improves outcomes, and second, whether it's safe. Since the 1990s, studies have demonstrated that running hot with the lights flashing and the siren blaring doesn't save all that much time and is rather dangerous. According to a source called Road Rescue in 2021, in Greenville, North Carolina, the difference between following usual traffic laws and running with lights and sirens made about 43.5 seconds difference in arrival time at the hospital. In longer transports, the time savings was 1.7 to 3.6 minutes, according to a 1995 article in the Annals of Emergency Medicine. This rather unremarkable time savings could not be significant in improving outcomes in the patients being transported. Indeed, about the only time a couple of minutes might make a difference is during a cardiac arrest. However, the most likely thing to 
change the outcome in these arrest situations is electrical defibrillation or cardioversion, something that every ALS ambulance in the country can perform en route to the hospital and much sooner. Some people might claim that in trauma situations, more rapid arrival to the emergency department could improve the outcome. Again, controlling active blood loss will decrease mortality, like electrical defibrillation does in the life-threatening heart rhythms. But just as in the arrest situation, the tools and techniques for decreasing bleeding, applying pressure, tourniquet application, or use of blood clotting dressings or medication are available in ambulances. Now, how historically did we arrive at the use of flashing lights and sirens in EMS? For the past couple of centuries, firefighters responding to fire calls have used auditory signals to warn other vehicles and get them to clear a path. The first use was bells that they clanged as they proceeded through the streets. With the advent of the internal combustion engine, sirens tended to replace bells and flashing lights were added as further signaling. Most people would agree that the sooner firefighters got to the scene, the less destruction might occur to property if they initiated fire-retarding techniques, and the better chance people would have of being rescued by the trained experts. Likewise, police vehicles have long since used lights and siren during their response, improving the likelihood that they might intervene in circumstances of danger to people or property, and also to improve the chance of apprehending the criminals. In the early stages of development in modern EMS in the late 1960s and early 1970s, ambulance design and development was rapid. You can listen to my earlier episodes about the history of EMS in America for more details about this. Using the example of fire and police vehicles, it seemed logical to add the same signaling to the vehicles being used to transport the sick or injured to hospitals. This required no great thought or study, it just seemed obvious. Over time, however, studies like the Annals of Emergency Medicine one in 1995 showed that the time savings was negligible, and on serious consideration, it became obvious to many in the EMS field that lights and siren were not necessary in the vast majority of cases. If the chief complaint was known and was not one in which a few minutes might make a difference, then the lights and siren may not even be necessary on the way from the squad building to the scene either. As with other changes in the widely accepted, but maybe not true, aspects of our profession, a great resistance to changing this status quo is present. What's the difference, though? Don't people want us to get to the scene or to their house as quickly as possible? Don't they think that they should be almost instantaneously be taken to the hospital emergency department? Don't they think that they'll receive immediate and definitive attention once they get to the emergency department? If all this was true, as popular TV shows and movies tend to indicate, it would be satisfying and marvelous. But those of us in EMS and emergency medicine know that this does not represent the actual state of emergency medical response and emergency care. And besides not representing reality, when we've studied all this, we've found that those few minutes saved almost never make any real difference. So if it doesn't make a difference, why not use the lights, the siren, drive above the speed limit and bypass usual traffic regulations anyway? 
Well, the truth is that doing these things exposes everyone to considerable risk. The crew in the vehicle and the patients are, that they are transporting are at increased risk of a collision. The public's also at great risk. People may not see or hear the approaching vehicles, and they may not yield on the road, or they may enter an intersection when they assume that it's safe to enter and get into the path of a rapidly approaching ambulance. In another article in the Annals of Emergency Medicine in 2002, it was noted that some 67 EMF deaths in an earlier five-year period were due to vehicle crashes. A much larger number of significant injuries occur to EMS or to the public from vehicle crashes. Anyone could assume that if you're sick or injured and on your way to a hospital in the back of an ambulance, a crash of that vehicle will complicate your condition and multiply your risk. One study done with pediatric transport showed that when they evaluated over a year about Two-thirds, around 75 or 76 percent of all calls involved the use of lights and siren during the transport. Utilizing a program that educated emergency personnel and eventually assigning a rule that 100 percent of all use of lights and siren had to be justified, they reduced that within a couple of years to less than 20 percent of all calls involving lights and siren. So as someone who's been involved in evaluating EMS protocols and routine procedures, my colleagues and I have researched and debated this issue for years. And indeed, some decrease in the use of dangerous speeds and previously rather routine use of lights and siren has occurred. Everyone's aware, though, that ambulances still frequently use these signaling techniques to clear their path and supposedly expedite their transport. I believe that this should be reduced even further, that lights and sirens should be utilized only in situations where the patient might be expected to die or suffer severe consequences if the signaling was not employed. This would result in only a small minority of ambulance transports running with lights and siren. If the signaling were more rarely used, it might actually increase the effectiveness of it in the situations where it may make a difference. Following routine traffic speeds and obeying intersection signals like stop signs or traffic lights would reduce the crash risks to the level of risk which we're all exposed to in our vehicles when we take a trip. Our EMS personnel, our patients, and the general public on the roads would not be at higher risk, and the injury and death rates involving ambulances would be reduced. There are a number of other studies which support the ones that I've quoted here. It's not just my opinion that running hot with lights flashing and siren sounding, driving the ambulance over the speed limit for that route, and going through intersections where ordinarily one would stop and proceed when it's your vehicle's turn, not only doesn't improve the patient outcome, it also introduces unnecessary danger to the situation. In my episode in this podcast, called Is the Scene Safe, I stated my often repeated axiom that it never improves the situation to add victims. In the case of running with all the switches flipped on and the accelerator pushed to the floor, we're making the scene unsafe, and the scene is our ambulance and everything in its immediate vicinity. 
This is proven by multiple studies, and we in the emergency response community should change our routine to be safer, recognizing that getting patients safely to the emergency department in a controlled manner is sufficient, and all that drama won't make any difference in the patient's medical outcome in almost every circumstance. So let's leave the noise, the lights flashing, and taking turns on two wheels with the tires smoking to the movies and TV shows, where after all, they actually reduce the risk by not allowing the general public into the scene. And they have specially prepared stunt vehicles driven by stunt drivers. It makes for great drama on screen, but has little use in the uncontrolled and unpredictable real streets and roads on which we all drive. Well, thanks again for listening to my podcast, EMS History, Myth, and Media. I strive to include topics which are not within the usual and typical presentations about emergency medical services and emergency medicine as it's practiced in hospital emergency departments. As always, I dedicate my efforts to the various professionals involved, EMTs, paramedics, emergency nurses, emergency physicians, and the advanced providers, the physician assistants and nurse practitioners who have entered this vital branch of healthcare. The supporting professionals, from the unit receptionists who handle all the communications, the triage staff, as well as radiology techs, respiratory therapists, pharmacists, social services, security, and many others, are all critical to the overall success of the whole process. We evaluate and treat people regardless of their complaint, regardless of their age, their gender, or whether they can even pay. Ours is the only aspect of medicine completely without appointments, without preconditions on choosing our patients. Those of us who do this love the challenge, love the excitement, and love the satisfaction we get from helping people in their times of need. As I used to tell people, people met me on what was often the worst day of their life. Please keep listening and catch some of my earlier episodes if you haven't already listened. I'm Rex a retired emergency physician, and I look forward to covering other topics in my podcast, EMS, History, Myth, and Media.